Welcome to From the Bone Vault, coming to you live from below Midnight Lair. I'm Gil. And I'm Levi. And this is our episode covering, you guessed it, The Adams Family. Oh man, do we have a monster of a show for you guys tonight. So, as much content as we found about this show, this may be broken into two parts. So, be ready for this to be 2.1 and (laughs) 2.2. Just getting right into it, wow, this franchise is huge. It was pretty massive. Oh, man. I I thought the Munsters was pretty big, but oh, between toys and series and iterations and oh, this was mammoth. This took us some time. So right off the bat, let's get into a little bit of the origins of this whole thing. The original cartoon, as some know, was originated by Charles Adams very many, many, many years ago and has had several different, as I said, iterations and adaptations since then. You had the original hand-drawn cartoon, which led into the television series, which led into cartoons in the 70s, which led into a reunion show. Then you had the reboot in the 90s that all of us remember, my generation. And bit after bit after bit, you had a Saban TV show that tried to relaunch off of the 90s movies. It's an insane amount of stuff. So we're going to start with the 60s television show, get into here and there a couple of pieces where we talk a little more about the um, actual original hand-drawn cartoon, how this may relate to the Munsters, discuss the movies a bit, and then we'll wrap up with our thoughts about Adam's family on the whole. So, Levi, in our digging through the boneyard that is the uh, Adam's family, what all did you dig up? Well, the first place I ended up was Charles Adams. And like you said, he was an illustrator. He sort of conceived of the Adams family back when they didn't even have a name. Charles Adams was an illustrator who was born January 7th, 1912 in Westfield, New Jersey. When he was a child, around 1920, he moved to a house on Elm Street. And there was another house on Dudley Avenue. I didn't know the Elm Street part. Yeah. But uh, he found another house on Dudley Avenue that he really liked to go in and just hang out. It's thought that both of these houses were the inspiration for the Adams Family House, kind of the same architecture. Right, that uh, Queen Anne style. Yeah, very spooky and iconic. I mean, if you think of a, a haunted house, like when they show one in a cartoon, a lot of times it will look like the Adams Mansion. Yeah, the old derelict rundown place like he used to see. They yeah. had a lot of, uh, in a couple of the documentaries I saw, they would show a couple of the houses from that area and from that era. And I, I just couldn't believe how... Like, I wanted to move into him myself, being right. a horror fan. I'm like, those look amazing. So, him garnering that inspiration was awesome. Yeah, it's a great place to get that inspiration. And his friends said that he drew all the time. He had a friend that said his sense of humor was a little different from everybody else's, which is <laughs> obvious if you've seen some of his illustrations. Yeah, understatement. I believe his first cartoon appeared in The New Yorker around 1938, and he was a freelancer for the rest of his life for 50 years. And one little tidbit I found interesting as a movie fan, one of my favorite directors, Alfred Hitchcock, was a friend of Adam's, and he actually owned two pieces of original Adam's art. Also, in my favorite film of his, North by Northwest, there's a scene where Cary Grant's character meets with the other characters. They think that he's a spy. 1,000, thank you. 1,000 at 1,000, say 1,100. Can I hear 1,100? 
Selling at 1,000. The three of you together. Now, that's a picture only Charles Adams could draw. Adams was a very popular artist among a lot of people, and I think he just struck a chord with his art. Well, I mean, it was very genuine for the time. I mean, I can't recall anything as, I guess for lack of a better term, morose as that, anything that evoked that kind of emotion. There was nothing like this. I think that's why that malicious, you know, because that rings to the Adams family themselves, this perceived threat that they have about them, this perceived malice that he brought out in those cartoons. Yeah. The funny thing is, just like the Munsters, they're basically harmless. They do traffic in talking about torture and the kids repeatedly try to electrocute each other and even sometimes their (laughs) guests. But generally, they seem like really cool people to hang out with. I think that was part of their charm. Like you said, it brings this morose angle to the nuclear family. And that's one thing I saw in an interview with Angelica Houston. She said that she really liked the cartoons when she was a child in Ireland and that a lot of his darkness came from the post-war era and the country trying to rebuild and trying to figure out where leave it to beaver type 50s morals fit in this world that had been at war for so long. Yeah. And I think that rings true when you hear that background that there is a darkness to these characters that runs pretty deep and is pretty serious, but he can get the humor from that and I think that's the genius of his cartoons. It kind of showed us how to a, a humorous way of dealing with those dark feelings. That's that's a good point. That's a really good point. The reason that the TV show came about was a TV producer, David Levy, was walking down the street and he saw the cover of one of Adams's books titled Homebodies. And he turned to his friend and said, now there's a show. So he just called up Adams and said that he wanted to do a series. In speaking to Adams, he found out that Adams didn't even have names for the characters. So he requested that he create names for them and create little short descriptions for the characters so the actors could use it for inspiration. Yeah, these these were awesome. The first time I got to hear these in doing our research, I was just blown away by his words and how over the years it's translated from paper to celluloid. Mm-hmm. And these are awesome. Throw a couple of these at me real quick. Let's go for Gomez Adams. His original description was husband to Morticia, if indeed they're married at all, a crafty schemer, but also a jolly man in his own way, though sometimes misguided, sentimental and often puckish. Optimistic, he is in full enthusiasm for his dreadful plots, is sometimes seen in a rather formal dressing gown, the only one who smokes. So that gives a really great description of Gomez in each of his iterations. I think he's embodied in some way. And we'll, you know, when we get a little later into the the movies, we'll talk about my favorite iteration of Gomez. And we'll we'll do those comparisons. But I can tell you right now, that's just, that's perfect for for where I'm going to bring that out. Um, So yeah, the next one here is uh, Morticia, the real head of the family, low-voiced, incisive and subtle, smiles are rare, ruined beauty, contemptuous and original, with a fierce family loyalty, even in disposition, muted, witty, and sometimes deadly, given to low-keyed rhapsodies about her garden of deadly nightshade, henbane, and dwarf's hair. Love it. Just (laughs) Just everything that evokes on paper, that's just liquid like Morticia. 
Right. And that one phrase, ruined beauty, I really like that because to me that harkens back to being in the post-war era and after war, beautiful monuments are torn down and finding something in that to move forward. That's Morticia. And she is the strength that keeps the family moving forward through any trials that they have. And like you said, we'll get to that in the movies, but they had some really good depictions in the movies of her sort of being the rock. I think we're uh, we're not burying the lead very well of which one we preferred. <laughs> no, I, I don't think we are. I mean, our age probably will give that away, but... <laughs> very true. Very I don't true. think we're going to be able to hide it through the long discussion that's going to follow. The the rest of these go through. One one thing that, sticks that, that just kind of jumps out at me under Pugsley's section mm-hmm. is the name. With the name Pubert being different than Pugsley, in the films, the third kid... It's named Pubert. Yes. I had no idea that that was the callback until I just saw that I went, aha. <laughs> but I think you skipped your thought process there. You didn't reveal to the audience where Pubert originally came from. Oh, true story. <laughs> Charles Adams originally named the son Pubert, but the network said, uh, we don't like that name, so we're going to change it to Pugsley. So that's why Pugsley is Pugsley. And in the second movie in 1993, the baby they had was named Pubert. That's so cool. And I love this. And it speaks of like this 1950s aesthetic. That last line, it says, is sometimes allowed an occasional cigar. Yeah, why not? And, I mean. And he's not even a teenager. Right. But he's he's eight or nine. He's old enough to have a cigar once in a while. I mean, he's good. why not? He's good. Some other interesting tidbits that we find as we go through the family members was their relationship to one another and how it changes right. through the years. Grandmama was Gomez's mother on the TV show. And changed to Morticia's later. Also, Fester was Morticia's uncle instead of Gomez's brother. And if you want to complicate things even further with this odd family tree, they always mention they had the cousins and whatnot, but they even complicated things further with the 1970s reunion episode. Really? Gomez has a brother that no one's ever known about. Gomez's mother actually winds up living with them and is dressed almost identically to Grandmama. Well, that's not confusing. Not at all, considering the only thing (laughs) difference in them was like a wig. Nice. And then you have all these other tertiary cousins that keep showing up that they Mm -hmm. name, they genuinely name them for a scene, and then they're gone. Wow. No relation, just boop, boop, in and out. This was all from the 73 Halloween special. Yeah, that weird Halloween special. Oh, if you guys, I'll tell you right now, if you get the chance, get a bracing shot of whiskey, watch that. It is on (laughs) YouTube somewhere. If you're of age. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it could be a Pugsley situation. That's true. I think we'll talk a little more detail on the, I think, personally, I think everybody's favorite kid, Wednesday. Yeah. I mean, out of, out of the cast, I think she's probably the one that's the darling out there. And then you have, of course, the towering Mountain of Power, Lurch. I, I guess, really, I mean, that's the main cast, because mm-hmm. when you look at the cartoons, Thing is present. Right. But he is not as center stage as he was for the television show, and then later for the movies, even right. more so. You do have Cousin It usually making... That's probably the most frequent of the guest cousins, I guess I would say. And he's sort of a mainstay. A lot of people remember him just because he's such an iconic ball of hair with a hat or glasses. And it's just such a fun idea. And the voice. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's where Beaker gets that from. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. That would be an interesting tidbit to check into. Like, which originated Hugh? Maybe it's Cousin Beaker. That's why he's on Sesame Street. Beaker Adams. (laughs) (laughs) With that, do you want to kind of move into the TV show? Do you have any interesting facts that you might have found? Well, a couple of things right off the bat. This show premiered six days before the Munsters. 
with no pre-planning out of either of the networks, no collusion. They just went, hey, we have shows. The same week that The Addams Family came out, Bewitched came out. Right. There's a lot of supernatural stuff on TV. Yeah. A couple other things. Ted Cassidy, the guy who played Lurch, was hired immediately because of his size and his voice. Originally, Lurch was actually going to be mute, but they really liked that that he had going on. And in finding that, I didn't know that was him. I thought they ADR'd that in. But that was him. That was his voice. That's so cool. <laughs> Jackie Coogan, Fester, uh, was a child actor in a lot of the silent films. His parents took all of his money from yeah. those films. That's horrible. They gave him nothing. Yeah. He shaved his head for the audition because he wanted this role so badly. And really, I don't think you could have had this show without Coogan. I mean, he was just that little extra bit of Gomez. Oh, he was perfect. He was sort of a counterpoint to the darkness of the family in a way because he's got such childlike joy and even his voice is real high. He's got kind of that curly Three Stooges vibe going on. And exactly. He, he just brings that other edge. He kind of lightens up that dark edge sometimes. And he's got that childlike glee about him. His yeah, face lights up every time he says anything. Right. Carolyn Jones was originally from Amarillo, Texas. She and John Aston sort of kept their distance offset to keep the attention and uh, uh, attraction and tension. So they would, you know, do that whole separation makes the heart grow fonder. That way, when they really sold it on screen, it really sold. A lot of the writing and rewriting was done by uh, Nate Perrin. He was uncredited for most of the series. Uh, he actually wrote for other comedians like uh, Eddie Kander, the Marx Brothers, Red Skelton. Uh, he was friends with Groucho Marx, which is why Gomez has such a close resemblance, even from the right. comic iteration to now, to that iconic character. So Yeah, the cigar, the way his mustache looks, even the way that John Aston moves his eyes kind of is Marxian. The way he gesticulates with that cigar is just exactly. is very Groucho. Uh, during the original television run of the Adams Family series, the New Yorker editor, William Sean, refused to publish any of the Adams Family cartoons, though he continued to publish uh, other Charles Adams cartoons. Uh, Sean regarded his magazine as targeting a more refined readership and didn't want to associate with the characters uh, to be seen by anybody on the television show with just anybody. After Sean's 1987 retirement, though, the characters were welcomed back to the New Yorker. So you think of the disparity in that time frame. I mean, you're talking a show that was very popular toward the beginning of the 60s. You've got almost a 20-year-plus stretch before they even make their way back into paper. Right. Um, And that was a year before Charles Adams passed away. So unfortunately, for the end of his life, they weren't in the New Yorker. I don't know how deeply you want to get into all the iterations of the Adams. You mentioned them earlier, and I have quite a few details, but I don't think we want to go into everything. Are there any? I know I have a couple of highlights. Are there any that you want to point out? I would say, you know, a lot of other television shows, specifically the cartoons that were Hanna-Barbera or Hanna-Barbera-esque, had a lot of influence from these things. Mm-hmm. All the other popular items of that era really made their mark there. You know, you had Uncle Fester, Lurch, Pugsley were all in the, some of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons, and they had their own right. run. You had the Scooby-Doo movie that had Wednesday as one of the characters. You had a Halloween reunion show. You had the, the feature films. You had yet another cartoon that came out to the 1991. I mean, this franchise spawned so much content for so long, too. I mean, the, the cartoons each had uh, three to four seasons each. So, yeah. I mean, these things played. People wanted to see it. Yeah, they lasted longer than the actual TV show that they kind of branched off from. I'm sure a lot of kids, that's their fondest memory is watching Adam's Family on Saturday morning. Right. 
1998, there were two concurrent TV adaptations. One was produced in Canada. And in this one, Gomez was sort of fashioned after the John Aston portrayal. Right. And at the same time, there was a third Adams Family movie that was made for television. Oh. And I just watched a couple seconds here and there. At some point, I'd like to go back and see the whole thing just because <laughs> Tim Curry plays Gomez Adams in a Raul Julia-esque style. And I watched the first, I don't know, minute or two, and I just couldn't bear to watch much more because it's I, very oh, late it's 90s hard. TV. Yeah, if you saw anything that Saban Entertainment put out, because they were the ones behind that, people that like cartoons and other kids shows of their era, you'll recognize this when I say it. It was shot like an episode of the Big Bad Beetleborgs. The same camera techniques, the same schlock and, and slapstick humor is smeared all over this thing. And even with that fun Saban Entertainment kind of stuff, even with Tim Curry and even with Daryl Hannah, that movie is this abomination. It is bad. If you get the chance, go check it out just so you can say you saw the, the trifecta of the movies they made. But whoo, get that get that whiskey out. It's pretty rough. But they did bring it to Broadway in 2010. Yes. A fun little casting note. Nathan Lane as Gomez Adams. Did you catch him in the second movie? Yes, he was the... Uh, I had to think about that for a second. He was actually the booking officer at the police station. I demand justice. Someone has married my brother. No. She took him to Hawaii. Get out of here. They have moved into a large, expensive home where they make love constantly. I hate when that happens. Arrest her at once without delay. Who? Debbie, my brother's wife, the temptress of Waikiki. Who are you? What are you? Who moved the rock? Officer, you must issue a subpoena. I believe they own... Gomez, no. A Buick! Just leave. Leave quietly. Leave now. Don't make me call Ringling Brothers. Has the planet gone mad? Hook em, book em, cook em. Now! I don't know if you watched any of the Broadway musical, but... I have not. I have not gotten a chance to do that. It was kind of catchy. There was a song that I heard a lot when I watched clips that Wednesday sang, and it stuck in my head, but it just sort of clashed in my mind with what I thought of the Adams Family. It'd probably be a fun show to see live, but my brain just didn't quite know what to make of it. To that end, I think what we may do at one point, just to tangent off for a second, is I think we might come back and do an episode about adaptations of spooky stuff that's made it to Broadway, because it was a very fun Mm. adaptation of Young Frankenstein that I got to really? see on Broadway cool. or uh, on the stage. That was very fun. I think we can do. So keep keep your eyes peeled for that, guys. I think with that, maybe we could come back and start with the TV show and see what kind of experiences we had with that. Yeah, let's do it. All right. This first episode of The Adams Family is The Adams Family Goes to School, Season 1, Episode 1. It aired September 18th, 1964, which was a Friday, six days before the Munsters came on television on a Thursday. So, Gil, you want to give us a quick synopsis and then we can jump into this episode? Yeah. So, episode starts out with the local truancy officer making his way over to the Adams family home, getting a quick stinger from the uh, mailman of, don't go in there, pal. Makes his way up to the front door to meet the first contact Wednesday, who answers with a nice little cutesy voice. Let's the gentleman in. It in turn moves to meeting Pugsley, seeing the amazing set 
if anything about this show, Truly. I got to say that that set was awesome. And that There's first so much to was, see on that set. Oh, I would so just love to pieces. walk around that and just look at everything. They say the house is a museum and that's the perfect description for it. Exactly. All the different pieces, the, the massive birdcage in the center of the front yes, the room the when crows. he comes in. Oh, that was great. Moves from there to meeting the, uh, you know, seeing a couple of the dark pieces from the kids talking about beheading the doll. They bring him to Morticia, who in turn does more of her introduction of her plants, uh, the little conservatory they have there. She rings for Lurch from a noose and the loudest gong and screen shake you've ever seen. Yes. Uh, Lurch this is a this- repeated joke that I love. The gong. Oh, that is the best. Just It's just simple gong and the entire screen shaking. And, going crazy. and Gomez always runs up to it and just hits it, even when the truancy officer, oh, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. He just goes and kicks that thing into gear i love it <laughs> and then we get another I- iconic piece of the show uh is lurch coming in going you ring and laying that big meaty hand on the guy's shoulder he and then turn brings him over to gomez who walks him around the home a little more they get a little more banter a little more silly in turn from there they get to meet fester and granny the truancy officer mistakes their talk about get him in the heart for trying to kill him he flees from the house, <laughs> and we get the full introduction to the family, Sans Thing, because he doesn't make his appearance till a little later in the show. A lot of back and forth of them talking about the Adamses and being misunderstood, uh, and then them doing their signature goofs about the dark and the macabre, uh, leads eventually to them sending the kids to school on a more regular basis to interact with the world. It was really a good episode of the show, but overall, in watching this... And watching the series itself to kickstart the conversation, I gotta say, the nostalgia goggles for me were on pretty tight because I did not like this as much as I thought I was going to. Yeah, I thought there were some things that I really enjoyed. And the thing I liked most about the episode was the truancy officer and Mrs. Comstock. Do you remember Mrs. Comstock? Yes, yes. Well, Mrs. Comstock sort of gets in there and rubs elbows with him. I don't know if you remember when she was talking to Gomez. Of course, these cases bring the superintendent down on our necks. And he's a most difficult, troublesome man. Oh? (laughs) And there's always one like that in the school system. Well, I know just how to handle it. You get me his picture, and I'll send it to my friend Dubois in Haiti when he's through sticking pins in it. (laughs) Gomez, you haven't heard from Dubois in years. He may not be taking mail orders anymore. (laughs) How about a nice old-fashioned horse whipping? Good, good. Or a little boa constrictor. Give him a good squeeze. (laughs) Dip in boiling oil. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Comstock, you're my kind of people. Do you know what other 1960s television show Miss Comstock was on? No. She was on batman was she the housekeeper yes she was the housekeeper oh my gosh yeah mrs cooper that was her name i had to find it in my notes there you go wow they shared a lot of different actors between there but that's just funny that one of the one of the shows that was responsible for putting both this show and the monsters in the ground right that she would go on to that and i think it was the same network batman and the adams family were both on abc But one of my favorite gags of the episode had to do with the truancy officer. And when he was in the office with Miss Comstock and the other lady, he he talks to them and he's sort of flustered and angry. So he storms off and slams (laughs) the door and there's a beat 
And he opens the door and says, that's a closet. I'm sorry. And then he leaves the room. Mr. Hilliard, if you'll take my advice, you'll go home and lie down for a while. If you take my advice, you'll leave those Adams kids right where they are. <laughs> That's a closet. I'm sorry. I never knew he drank. <laughs> that one genuinely made me laugh. Of the episode, that was the gag that made me laugh. It was very Dick Van Dyke. Right. And I think in that way, this kind of acts as a an introduction to the family. And I think that's why it's a good first episode. It doesn't really yeah. have some of the great moments that some of the later episodes have. But it right. did have one of the iconic things of almost any iteration of the Adams, which is Gomez playing with his toy trains and blowing them up. Yes. How do you do, Mr. Hilliard? I just stopped by to talk to you about... I thought that was a pretty good line. <laughs> you know, let's get the good out of the way. I can tell you right from my perspective, I absolutely love the Morticia and Gomez dynamic and yes. where, it's, where it starts right here was seeing that Gatomia, that that love affair these right. two have. I've got to give it to John Aston and, and his counterpart here where they have this passion that you just do not see out of married couples on screen in anything of that era. Right. I mean, you got you have Ricky and Lucy, but that's nowhere near the amount no. of just raw animal magnetism these two have for each other. And it is hammed up a little bit. But at the same time, it's just this was not seen. So I think that was really cool, that breakthrough piece for them. Right. And then seeing the set compared to other TV shows that were there. Oh, man. Not just from the fact that it was just very cool looking. Right. You know, the little oddities and things that were on there. But just Always the something to look at. scope. Yes. You know, you had Leave it to Beaver where it went to different pieces and you went around the neighborhood and you saw the house in different angles and Beef's room and stuff. Right. But you didn't have such a marvel of a piece, a backing piece to this family. Right. Something that really just stood out and struck your eyes when you looked at it. And they had the front yard. They had the uh, greenhouse in the back. When you see Morticia, that look reminded me, as as you've said a couple times, I'm a Batman fan. And her greenhouse reminds me of watching the Batman animated series in the 90s and seeing any scene with Poison Ivy. Yes. She has these plants around her that she's talking to. It kind of reminded me of, hey, she's kind of like Poison Ivy. Maybe Poison Ivy wants to be like Morticia. That's, I, you know, I never actually thought about that, that maybe if whether or not whoever their creator was maybe got a little bit of that vibe off Morticia, maybe that might have been some of the birthplace of that character. Maybe so. That's outside my Batman knowledge, unfortunately. Yeah, but it would be, it would be fun to check into. So yeah, seeing this episode, watching it, digesting it. I don't know. I mean, it was just, it, I hate to say that it was a hard watch because the theme, the iconic theme that brought it up. Just when that kicks in, right. you get, oh, they're creepy and they're kooky. I want to see more of this show. Right. And you get into it. But then you get into the show. I just don't know that this show stood up to the monsters like it should have. I agree. You know, you had Charles Adams' work in one hand. You had the Universal Monsters in the other. And then those were the birth children that actually led to these two shows side by side, starting so close to each other. Right. I think these same jokes really landed on the monsters where they didn't land in this episode. They tried to be the 
well, isn't that funny? I cut the head off a rose laugh track. And it's like, okay, but that wasn't funny. Right. So I really wish I would have had time to dive deeper into the series because reading about Nate Perrin, the guy you mentioned who did a lot of, I guess you could say, ghostwriting for the right. series. He came from a lot of Marx Brothers movies and whatnot. And I think he had that deeper, sarcastic wit that I appreciate. But I didn't see that in this first episode. Yeah. And maybe his fingerprints aren't as much on this as they were later. And honestly, I'm kind of like you. I, I found some moments that I did like, which were mostly with Mr. Hilliard and Mrs. Cooper. I thought their reactions to the atoms were more entertaining than the atoms themselves. Yeah. I don't know if I'd call that a problem necessarily, but it's called the Adams family. Yeah, so, and it's not to detract from the show because the show, I don't want to say it was bad. It really wasn't bad, but it's just in reviewing the material and taking the nostalgia goggles off and really giving it a good hard shake based on what we like now, I think we're going to find some of these things that just as a kid looking at it through that lens – you feel a certain way. In other people that I asked at different times about the television show, I said, hey, Munsters are Adams Family. And resoundingly, the answer I got was actually the Adams Family. But then in talking mm-hmm. to them and saying, hey, what do you remember? What do you remember? They had many more memories of the Munsters. They could point to more things of the Munsters. Uh-huh. Again, not to, not to hold them up too much of a side-by-side to try to say, which one's the superior content? I think the longevity of this franchise stood with the iconic family they made, and I wish they would have focused the episodes and the jokes a little more to Mm -hmm. them for the TV series. Right. And like I said, I only really got to watch this first episode. I watched pieces of other episodes, and I watched some YouTube compilations that people had made just... As we said, there's so much Adams material out there, and we had two movies to watch for this, (laughs) as well as the TV show, so I was trying to blow through everything that I could, and I really liked the moments that I saw of Gomez and Morticia. Those were the highlights, I think. Like I did with the Munsters, I I talked to my wife about the TV show, and she said that was what always got her, is she loved the way they interacted with each other and the affection that they showed, and even when we grew up in the 80s and 90s, couples didn't interact that way. I think in one documentary, someone said they have this sensuality, but kids don't even realize what that is. And even people back then didn't acknowledge it, but you can feel it just as a human being. You see their passion for one another on screen. And I think that rang true for this show in a way that the Munsters had a great family dynamic overall. And they were definitely a family unit and they were there for each other. But their relationship with Lily and Herman was very 50s, very peck yes. in the cheek, very honey, I love you. Hey, let's turn the light out, dim down, we'll snuggle. Right. <laughs> Gomez and Morticia were like, we are in love. <laughs> right. We are a fire. Rapturous love for each other at every yes. moment. Yes. He has all this beautiful flowery language to describe her and his family and just the passion oozes out of him. And they just seem like teenagers in love for the rest of their lives. Which is what we all hope for. Right. Exactly. And, you know, comparing this to the Munsters, I wanted to mention the fact that the Adams do have money. It's mentioned a oh, lot yeah. that they're wealthy. Yeah. Insanely so. Yes. I mean, Gomez just spends money on everything, and he doesn't really even seem to go to a... None of them seem to go to a job. To that end, there was an episode I caught that had, uh, of all people, Don Rickles on it. 
where it was in a Halloween episode where two robbers knock over a bank on mm-hmm. Halloween, wind up at the Adams family joint, and they deal with <laughs> back and forth with them. Gomez at one point in the episode opens this massive drawer, about an arm's length uh-huh. in, in size, and it is just chalk full of cash. I mean, it is spilling over with $100 bills. And he just grabs handfuls of this and starts putting it in their bag. (laughs) So even in the the TV series, they were psychotically wealthy. I bring that up because to me, the Munsters, they very much to me seemed like a blue collar family. Yes. And I think they mentioned that Herman owned his own business. He owned a mortuary, but he seemed like he got up, he kissed the family, he went out to work every day of his life, and he worked from nine to five or whatever hours he took, and he came home. And I I think that's one of the big differences I took away from these TV series is the Munsters is just kind of like, is about a working class family that loves each other and they're getting by and they deal with each other's quirks and there's always love underneath the interactions that they have with each other. Yes. So, so, so what the, the parallel we have is we have the Munsters Uh and then we have the Winslows and they should have been neighbors is what we should have been. Urkel should have been bothering the Munsters just as much as he was bothering Carl. I think that would be awesome. They would have have been on the same block. That would have been great. (laughs) (laughs) I think they would have probably gotten along. I think they had a lot of the same struggles probably. Well, I mean, when you factor in Urkel's machine to be able to change into anything, he probably, that would have, that's a whole episode we can write. Stay tuned (laughs) next time for the fan fiction Winslow's Meet the Monsters. <laughs> Excellent. I'm ready for that. That'll be a special I'll want to watch. There's one thing I wanted to mention. I don't know if this is getting a little too existential or too granular with this show, but... Go for it. Okay. Thing on the TV show. I was used to seeing Thing on the movies where he's a detached hand and right. you see where he's detached and everything. In the TV show, he's always popping up out of things. And sometimes within seconds, he's in the mailbox and then he's in so i was thinking what exactly is thing and is he a hand that teleports what i actually wonder is if thing t thing is actually one being with many 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 arms with a right hand and they're super flexible that's my theory if you look at charles adams pictures of thing there are several times where he draws him where he has multiple limbs coming off. Really? So, yeah. So, I think you are spot on. Oh, with wow. Thing. That's cool. Thing is a, something that lives within the house and can just put a limb out at any point in those little different sections and that's actually cool. get himself to interact. And that is the creepiest thing. <laughs> I know. When you think about that, that's... Ever. I mean, a detached hand, that's pretty creepy, but when you think about a being that is basically wearing a house and can reach you at any point, um, it's a good thing that he was friendly with the Adams, I guess. I know. I know. That's nowhere (laughs) near as scary as all the other stuff they had there. Trust me, that's the thing that creeps me out the most. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I do want to mention, we kind of glossed over it, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the song. Yes. The Adams Family Music. Mysterious and spooky, they're all together, okay. The Adams family, the house is a museum. When people come to see them, they really are a scream. The Adams family, neat, sweet, petite. So get a 
witch is shawl on, a broomstick you can crawl on. We're gonna pay a call on the Adams Family. It was from a creator named Vic Mizzy. Mm-hmm. He actually did this song for free because originally I think they wanted to use stock music or something to get it on the air really quickly and they didn't have time to work a deal with him. So he said, you know what, I'll just write the song and you put it on the air. Of course, it, it was a great song and it's super iconic. And, and comparing it to the Munsters, I think probably the Adams Family theme song is a more iconic song. I'd agree. Yep. There are things that I like about the Munsters better. I I found myself humming that more often. Um, it may just be the nature of the song, but the Adams Family music is so iconic. Yes, it, and it is definitely part. It is an ingrained piece of pop culture. You can well, you, sure. you nail on the head. You can walk up to anyone and go, and they know what you're talking about. Another thing I wanted to mention about Vic Mizzy was he was asked to do the Munsters theme song after he had written the Adams Family theme song, but out of professional courtesy, he said, you know what? I can't do that. Huh. And that's to both shows' benefits. I mean, they, keeping them in separate categories. Right. And I think their theme songs set you up for a different feeling. The Munsters yes. has a pretty definite 60s sitcom vibe with sort of a little bit of an edge to it. And then the Adams family is a very eccentric piece of audio that really sets you up and makes you sit up and go, Oh, I'm watching something different. And I feel like (laughs) that speaks to the way the families feel because the Adams, all of them feel like very distinct personalities that are standing up and saying, look at me. And they're not really doing it on purpose. It's just a matter of fact that they, they are this way. And by being themselves, they stand out. One last thing I'll mention about Vic Mizzy is he actually played all of the harpsichord music that Ted Cassidy mimed as Lurch. He would play music and Ted Cassidy would sit on set and just play away. I guess, is there anything else that you want to tie to uh, the Adams Family or the Munsters or both? A couple of quick things I'll, I'll throw out there. Through Part of my research was I really wanted to get... Not just my opinion and you and I volleyball this like we do. I kind of wanted to get other people's because of how much of a cultural impact these two pieces had. You know, this would kind of spurned you and I to really start with these two very iconic television shows. One little bit of feedback that I got from a good friend was, The Addams Family really created this whole world of unique characters and showed them as unique people that chose to embrace a lifestyle that went against societal norms, not out of spite, but out of naive love of the subjects. The Munsters wouldn't be funny if the Universal Monsters didn't live in the suburbs. Um, And those are the two comparisons. You had these Adams Adams family who say, hey, it's fine to be kooky. We're in our own little space. We got our niche. That's This is where we're comfy. Come on in. It's fun over here. Mm -hmm. And the the, uh, Universal Monsters went, hey, it's okay. You've got monsters just on the street, but we're fun. (laughs) It's okay. Exactly. Uh, And this blew me away, this little bit of, as you said, existential piece. The Monsters was for extroverts. The Adams family was for the introverts. Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. And it's the Munsters went out and interacted with the world, went out there and touched it and said, we're going to show you us. Mm -hmm. And then the Adams family said, we're safe at home. Mm -hmm. Come play in our little playland. You know, and I think that's the takeaway for a lot of people is that the Adams family made it okay to be weird. 
Yes. And I think that's why the Adams Family continues to resonate. And especially when we were growing up in the 90s, we were coming out of the 80s. And in the 80s, it was all about money and it was all about acquiring wealth. And as kids of the 90s, we kind of came out of that and we're just sort of looking for ourselves. And that's where a lot of the, the goth movement came from and people trying to find themselves. And there were all sorts of characters in the 90s in general. And I think... It's great that the Adams family sort of had a resurgence then. Yes. Because I know a lot of people said, hey, I'm a little weird, but that's cool. And I shouldn't be afraid to let people know that. Hey, this is Levi from the Edit Bay. And as predicted, we did run a little bit long on our Adams family coverage. So we'll go ahead and break this episode up into two. That means in one week, we'll be back to talk about the 1990s Adams family films, The Adams Family and Adams Family Values. And with that, I'll let Gil close it out. If you want to hear more content from us, reach out to us on the web at www.midnightlayershow.com. If Facebook is your preferred method of torture, you can reach out to us at facebook.com forward slash midnightlayershow. If Twitter is your poison, twitter.com forward slash midnightlayertv. And as always, you can search us out on YouTube. From the Bone Vault, this is Gil. And this is Levi. Good night and stay scary. Thank you for listening to episode 2.1 of From the Bone Vault, the Adams Family TV show. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email us at fromthebonevault at gmail.com. This has been a Midnight Layer Studios production. Midnight Layer.